right, welcome to Ideology. Murray here, Drew Stedman, and Courtney Rodriguez in the house behind the camera. AJ is... Uh, out of town, on vacation, otherwise uh, missing slacking. in action. Yes, otherwise slacking. Um, we are, if you've been following with us, we're doing a book review on James K.A. Smith's book, How Not to Be Secular, which is itself a book review of sorts on this Charles so Taylor's. <laughs> it's a review of a review. Uh, Someone should do a review of our podcast series and like see how deep we can go on this. This is like the ideology version of Inception. <laughs> So James K. Smith's book is itself a book review on Charles Taylor's A Secular Age, uh, which is probably itself some review of something somewhere. There are no, uh, no new ideas, nothing new under the sun. However, uh, we have found this to be a helpful resource. So uh, we last, uh, what, last couple weeks, no, 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 last week was the first week, we talked about the intro uh, and just gave some background on both Charles Taylor and James K. Smith and uh, maybe outlined the kind of the underlying principles around secularism, which is what, of course, the both of these works center on. And uh, James K. Smith offers more of a an appeal to followers of Jesus on how not to be secular. Uh, but today we're going to dive into uh, not just the intro, but chapter one, where he sets up the. Uh, main themes, or actually the five chapters really more so correspond to the five main movements in Charles Taylor's work, Secular Age. Um, but uh, chapter one today, right, Drew? Chapter one is today. Yeah, and I thought maybe we could start off uh, by doing a bit of a review for, especially for those who haven't yet picked up the book, of what is Taylor trying to say? How does it all tie in together? Um, so we have at the beginning of, of this book, Smith is giving us three different types of secularism that come from Charles Taylor. And Mick, I'd be interested in your take on this, of reading it for the first time, um, of what these represent. You know, but, but essentially what he's describing is secularism, one, refers to the separation of church and state. And that's this novel idea that, that was radical and new, is that you could have a government system that is detached from a society's religious system. And as best I can tell, that that is not a common thing in in world history. So that's secular in its original setting. And Mickey took it even further back into the Latin term of just time um, and, and how that came about. Secularism, too, is really what we would get into is more of like a naturalistic or even atheistic view of the world where it's, it's maybe not overt atheism, but it's essentially relegating faith to this privatized thing or this thing that a religious community may inhabit. But then secular is this supposedly neutral belief system that's based off of reason, facts, logic, uh, kind of a humanistic understanding. And um, this, this is going to be very important for what runs throughout this, this book of this concept of a subtraction theory. And what a subtraction theory is is saying is that it's, it's looking at religion as something that we are evolving out of because we don't need it anymore. And we're kind of sliding into this um, purely materialistic view of the world where through our science, we're able to make sense of the universe, make meaning in the world from within. And it's almost this inevitable progress of humanity. And what you do in a subtraction theory is you read history backwards. So you then look at religious development and you see how it's leading us into this new eschatological age, which I say with a bit of irony, but also seriously from a secular perspective. Um, that, that is the story of secularism too. And I think when we describe it, um, you know, certainly kind of the new atheism or certain things like that, like they would all be very entrenched in secularism too. 
But Taylor is introducing a third form of secularism, and he's contrasting it with secularism too. And for him, the, this idea of a nova, like an exploding star, and it's an exploding range of religious options for people, which is really derived, and we'll get into this in chapter one, from what he calls uh, this disenchanted, buffered, individualistic self, and I'll explain those words in a minute. But it's the sense of, I can make my own meaning in the world, and I have a range of options with which to do it. So if I want to get into New Age, I can. If I want to be a materialist, I can. If I want to try to be both, I can. And what he is saying is that this in itself, living in a world where I can think that way, is a brand new concept, and it's a form of cultural, dare I say, religious development that has left us with this secularism three where we can make our own meaning religiously. And and he's really framing that as a, honestly, a religious development, and that's how he's using it. So let me see if I can say it back after reading chapter one and then listening to your summaries. So to me, it almost sounds like secularism one and secularism two flow together, that secularism two is is more of like a, a developed version of secularism one. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think it's fair. And I think you know, as we read Taylor, he would probably see these as necessary stages in development. So we probably don't get secularism two without first getting secularism one, and we probably don't get secularism three without first getting the first two. Because I, I think of Francis Schaeffer's uh, kind of two-tiered uh, understanding of, of truth or reality. We've talked about this in some season in the past, but in the upstairs is the private realm of faith and uh, values and those sorts of things, and in the the downstairs is the public realm of reason and science, and and it's okay to have you know faith and values as long as they remain in the upstairs. But if you try to bring those to bear on the public sphere, then that's where we run into a problem. And I would think of that as maybe more depicting secularism too. But like you said, it's founded on this early notion of a separation of of church and state in secularism one. And then secularism three, if I was going to just try to take a stab at it, um, builds on that to, and, and it makes me think of in chapter one, he talks about the the social imaginary that uh, it's not so much what we believe, but it's, it's what is possible to believe has expanded to the point where um, uh, atheism is now almost a, a default starting point where if you were to go back 500 years, there was some kind of enchantment of the world, which was your default starting point, that even if you were not a, an overtly spiritual person, your, your default settings was still this, this baseline enchantment of the world. But that has changed sufficiently where it has opened the door for an explosion of all these different manifestations of, of belief or of non-faith that is uh, a range of possibilities that was not possible in any previous age. Is that more or less a fair uh, Yeah, I think you're capturing that. Yeah, and I think what we've said before is the idea of you know, what we call the gospel of secularism is live true to yourself. And that's secularism three in a lot of ways is you, you kind of take what's behind that is that I have the capacity, there's this in, interior blueprint for what possibilities are in my life. And I actually have that almost godlike power to make meaning of myself. And then I have a moral imperative to live true to the meaning that I make for myself. And so maybe that's a, a more sophisticated analysis of that term, you know, but it is, it, it really does come down to a very kind of pithy saying that people use, live true to yourself, I think is a watchword for, or a gospel message for secularism three. 
Um, what's interesting, and this is going to get into, I think, a lot of what um, Taylor does, what Smith does, um, the concept of fragility is that that I think secularism three depends upon secularism two, but secularism three and two are opposed to each other at some level. And, and so secularism two has this naive idealism to it almost, like mm-hmm. we have control of the world, we can make meaning of the world, we can answer the questions of the world, science solves the problem, and now science can be projected over human behavior. And it's all this stuff, like our technology and our science and all this, we can make sense of the world we can read our history with definitive understanding and arrive at, at truth. And to use Taylor's concept of an imminent frame, truth that does not come via revelation, but truth that comes via human discovery. You know, all of that's kind of in there with secularism too. Secularism three abandons all of that. So it's almost like this necessary stage of development that led to secularism three, but now secularism three is in many ways repudiating secularism two. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, don't, if that's a hard sentence to follow as you read the book, hopefully that makes more sense with time. But that there is an inbuilt fragility there of the stages of development are not as clear or even progressive as it might seem. And you couldn't have, I don't think, I, th- I don't think you go from an enchanted Christendom society to secularism three without those deistic stages. And just like nobody believes deism anymore, at least as they did, um, I think in the same way, kind of this confident, idealistic, naturalistic view of the world that so dominated the 19th century and and still, uh, you know, the 20th century and remains at, at least at some level in the popular consciousness today um, is an untenable belief system with postmodernity and other developments, even if you're a diehard atheist. Um, the, the philosophical underpinnings of that just aren't there anymore. So it creates a really uh, challenging environment probably for somebody in secularism three because the philosophical and religious underpinnings just aren't there. So you have to reinvent the foundation of a house that's already standing. Mm-hmm. It's complex. Could you overlay that just on the, the turn from modernism to postmodernism, secular t- secularism two to three? Yeah, I think I think you could. I mean, I think you know how you define those are really important. Um, but if... Modernism is that human reason, and this is a terribly simplistic definition, but it's like human reason and human power can make sense and meaning in the world um, where we can figure it all out. Postmodernism is like we're trapped within our language and culture and we can't escape it. And so whatever meaning we make is bounded by the cultural and linguistic assumptions that we carry. And so it, it you know, it, it calls into question the modern project and it, you kind of end up with, you know, what is truth? And the best that I can come to with truth is my ability to analyze language, not actually what's true, but I can just, at least according to the rules of the language or the discipline that you're talking in, I can dictate if your sentence makes sense, but I can't ever know if that really corresponds to reality. And along those lines, Taylor takes a phenomenological approach that that he you know uses that term, the social imaginary, that this is something that runs in the background constructs of our subconscious. It's more of a feel to this age than maybe the modernist um, hard line of reason in a previous age. Yeah, and, and both Taylor and Smith are, are drawing on this. What they're acknowledging is that there are different narratives of how to interpret where we are in the West. And so there is a, and to use Taylor's foil, is a subtraction theory. And that's a narrative. You know, that, that tells a story of how the world was trapped in superstition and mythology, how these brave early enlightenment, even the concept of enlightenment is a very polemic 
term because mm-hmm. you're saying that I have the light and you are trapped in darkness, or, right? Or Renaissance. Yeah, which, uh, you know, technically applied Renaissance um, deals with art, but, you know, kind of broadening that of like, it's this enlightening age. Um, I think it's really funny that it was the philosophers of the so-called enlightenment that gave the title of themselves. Mm-hmm. Like that's, the, the, the arrogance of that is shocking to me. Like everyone who came before me was trapped in darkness, but I'm enlightened. And somehow that word still lives on. So I never use that without scare quotes if I'm writing. Um, but there is, you know, there, there's a subtraction story to that where they broke free from the shackles of kind of medieval Catholicism and the, the, the impositions it placed upon science. And this is this almost human liberation. And then, you know, over time, you get less polemic and more charitable interpretations, which are just as bad, where it's kind of looking at the stages of development. You go from this totem religion that develops in tribal culture, and then you get into these more sophisticated forms of idol worship and pantheism, and then you get to the um, axial religions where there there more is a moral emphasis, and then it culminates in the agape religion of Christianity, which then culminates in humanism, which eventually culminates in this human culture of solidarity and love. And you know, it's it, but there's a there's a telus to that, right? Like there's a story to that. There is a uh, that that is a narrative of reinterpreting human history and culture, and if that's hard to wrap your head around, um, sometimes think through a, a story or a narrative and and put yourself in the position of someone else and how they might understand that same story. And it's it's really interesting how dramatically different stories can be told. And, you know, I mean, just as a, as a great example in our own nation, um, if you imagine certain stories in American history from the perspective of a Native American, it reads very differently than if it's a British settler, you know, and it's, and it's not that there's not truth on both sides and pain on both sides. And, and it's not that neither story fails to correspond to reality. It's just, you know, there, there's a narrative. And so what, what Taylor is doing is he's offering us a narrative of how to interpret the development of secularism and where we are today. And I think implied in that is if we know how we got here, we have a better understanding of where we are. And so he's giving us a narrative and what he's presenting to us is saying, does my narrative make better sense of the world as you experience it? And that's the approach that he's taking. And, and that's the approach that Smith is taking as well. And you know, I, 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 I like his book because I think he does a great job with it. And I, I think it'd be very difficult. And, I, you know, if there's somebody and hopefully listening that you're at a different stage of faith of understanding what you believe, uh, I think it's a great wrestle at least of read it and really sit with what he's saying because I, I think it does make a compelling point. Yeah, that's yeah, underscores one of the main thrusts of this podcast. The reason that we do this is to exhort us to pay attention to the narratives, to the ideas that are shaping our beliefs, and and just underscore, you know, the um, in chapter one, he uh, really emphasizes the point that that what we arrived at today was not inevitable, exactly like, like the narrative would suggest, but actually there was uh, a very um, specific set of circumstances that all coalesced to bring about the world that we live in today, but it was not inevitable. And uh, that's a that's a powerful kind of divergent point to make that um, that we are not at the kind of the tip of the spear of some progressive uh, flow of time, uh, but rather this is simply the world that we live in and we need to understand why that is. And like you said, does it correspond most closely to reality? And this is partially why I don't like words like deconstruction or progress, because both of those words imply neutrality in some level, or they impl- imply a like a, a baseline of yeah. Belief. There's a, there's a baseline assumption in that that we all 
you know, that we all agree on these things. These are what's neutral. And then we construct on top of that. And I'm deconstructing the thing that was constructed. Or subtract, yeah. And so I'm subtracting. Or progress implies an agreed upon goal. Like we know where history is pointed and we're progressing towards that. Which, of course, as a Christian, I have a view of that. A Marxist has a view of that. Like different belief systems have views of what that might be. But I think it's just completely false to assume that that's a shared assumption that we can make. And so I don't think anybody deconstructs. I don't, th- I don't believe in, in progress in the sense of that we're on this inevitable continuum towards something. I think instead we have communities that develop belief systems that are embedded within that community, and those change over time, and they interact with each other and create new possibilities. And that's very much in line with what both Smith and Taylor are arguing. And you know, I, I was thinking about just even this this narrative of secularism too and the subtraction theory versus uh, what he's arguing for is kind of this more individualistic secularism three is the default story. Um, I, you know, just observationally, what I've noticed is how many people who have rejected um, Christianity or evangelical Christianity um, deconstructing, how few of those people default to a purely materialistic atheism. And so if I have the theory that this is really a cognitive thing where faith is built on the propositions of a belief system and the Christian propositions aren't tenable and the secular ones are, uh, you know, it, it's, and this, is, this would be like straight down the middle for, for Taylor, is that humans are, are made for the transcendent. So what's going on is not that we are rejecting the idea of transcendence, but that we're actually being pulled into a new belief system that offers new possibilities of, of transcendence or not. Uh, so, you know, I, I know of many Christians who are people who are formerly Christian who, um, you know, re- reinvented their faith in some way that are like into astrology, you know, which is funny because you're like, okay, it's it's obviously not a cognitive argument where the supernatural claims of Christianity don't stand up, but the supernatural claims of astrology do, right. you know, like that doesn't make any sense, right? Um, but what it is, is it's, they, they've kind of uh, adopted uh, maybe a new active belief system or a new religious framework where there's something there, right? There's something there that's a baseline where one belief system is more compelling than the other, but it's not the like 200-year-old arguments about the historicity of the resurrection that's driving that. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, it's something different. And that's phenomenology. It's like, what is the difference? What are, what are the core of the core, not these recycled narratives that really don't make that much sense of reality as we know it, but there's something underneath the circle, or underneath the surface, I'm sorry, that's driving all of this, um, there, there, are, there are some beliefs, and I think he's hitting the nail on the head, where if you take secularism three, which is that I make my own meaning in the world, and I'm a buffered individual, which means I can kind of retreat into the self and make meaning that I want to make, well, then astrology makes a ton of sense, you know, because if that's what works for me, then that's great. I find it useful for my life. I, I'm not even that interested in propositional truth claims or the epistemology of astrology or something like that. Like, I'm not worried about that. What I'm worried about is I want to make my own meaning. I want to have the freedom to make my own meaning. And this is the meaning that I've chosen to make. And next week, it might be Buddhism. I try that on for a while. Um, you know, the week after that, who knows, maybe it's something else. But there, to, to, to say that everyone has their own faith actually implies a possibility underneath it. So it's not that there's millions of different belief systems. There's actually a, a belief system that we can make meaning of the world. Like that's the, the central tenant. That, that's maybe a thread that ties it all together is what's the story here is that we have a new belief system that teaches us that we can make our own meaning. And then I could draw from whatever resource I want. And that could be traditional Christianity, or that could be 
an obscure Eastern religion, or it could be no religion at all, or I could try to synthesize all of it. And all of those things are, are plausible because I have the, the internal freedom to make the meaning I want in the world. And so, you know, I, I think that might be getting at what he's talking about with secularism three, whereas secularism two, that doesn't fly. You know, you'd be like, you know, astrology is silly. Why would you believe that? Mm-hmm. You know, that's stupid. Yeah, I think that's a helpful uh, distinction. And actually that that uh, paints a recent conversation I had with an individual in a certain light. It helps me understand as I was spe- talking to a an individual uh, here in our city who would come from a very different kind of set of uh, ways of seeing the world and... And I found that as we had a very cordial conversation, but as we dipped down to the level of, of, for lack of better words, reason, there wasn't a lot of uh, reasons that this person could offer for the underpinnings of their specific positions on certain things. And I think there's a, a tremendous irony in that, you know, in that secularism three would kind of become unhinged or unmoored from propositional truth claims with all that the narrative um, uh, kind of hangs on, you know, these these scientific, um, or how would I say this, that the, the narrative is founded in hard science, um, but uh, yet very few people actually, well, want to be charitable. But it seems that often there's not a lot of deep thought uh, as to the kind of ontological truths that would underpin what I claim to believe. Yeah, you can almost say it, that the possibility of human reason disenchanted the world, but now a disenchanted world has rejected the possibility of human reason, mm-hmm. You know, which is a funny irony that I think you're hitting at. And where this has huge ramifications, and Smith gets into this, especially in some of his footnotes, is a lot of Christian apologetics is optimized for reason. So we're still fighting the last battle. We're still trying to argue the scientific valid- validity of Christianity and Christian truth claims. And a lot of what we're trying to do is be like, it's not unreasonable to be Christian when the, the world has really moved on from that in mm-hmm. some ways. They're not really asking the reason question at that level anymore. What they might be asking the question is, what, who gives you the right to project onto me your belief system? But that's not really a reason question. Mm-hmm. That's an authority question. Or, or that's maybe even more fundamentally, that's an anthropology question. Like, what is the self and what gives you the right to project your interpretation of the human person onto me and my own self-identity? You know, that, that's where these arguments tend to lie. But I think a lot of Christians, especially those of us who are maybe more inclined to, how do we think all this through? Um, I, I worry that we misinterpret the problem as the problem is the new atheist and secularism too. And I'm not suggesting those guys aren't out there. I, I don't think that that group has a lot of... Um, I'm not as impressed on the intellectual arguments there, you know, and there's, I forget who it was, one of those, one of those books, the, the, whoever wrote The God Delusion. Dawkins, right? Yeah, Dawkins. Um, Alvin Plantinga, who I mentioned last time, I post the most brutal review of that book from a philosophical standpoint, basically just saying like when a scientist tries to do philosophy and isn't trained in philosophy, they don't do a very good job, you know? Mm-hmm. It, I read it and I was like, oh man, this is harsh, you know? Mm-hmm. But that's kind of the point he's trying to make there is that um, that secularism too just isn't tenable, and I don't I don't know that a lot of you know non Christian philosophers are going to argue that anymore. You know they're just gonna they're gonna argue how can you know how can you know it at all? It's going to be more of a um, whatever whatever statement you want to make even about the world is embedded in your culture, and you only have the view from your culture. So how do you even make that argument in the first place? Like that's where that's where the academy is shifting, and that's where books like Taylor and Smith are so helpful. They're not fully postmodern, but they're trying to help us see. 
um, the way the world is thinking today is not what it was. And so the apologetics from 100 years ago aren't going to work in today's culture. There's an interesting book I read last semester uh, by, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but it's Megan O'Giblin, something to that effect, uh, God, Human, Animal, Machine. And she grew up um, in an evangelical home, went to Bible college, you know, classically deconstructed her faith in Bible college, and uh, is now, you know, full-blown, uh, what did you call it, agnostic, atheistic. But um, but it it's written in more of a kind of a memoir uh, fashion, and it's, it's interesting to watch her, uh, it kind of maps secularism two to secularism three and how she's grappling with her experience now, and really almost comes full circle. She's certainly not, uh, I wouldn't say she holds to orthodox Christian Faith, but has almost come full circle with like a Christian eschatology that's rooted in this kind of Silicon Valley humanism. And it's shocking the things that she's exploring, uh, almost these kind of metaphysical yeah. um, possibilities, you know, that we are the emergence of some, you know, creative entity. And, and it's so close, like the the eschatology, the Christian ontology. It's it's all right there, but there was this rejection of those propositional claims, and now this exploration of things that, to me, are a much greater stretch of the imagination. Yeah, that's a great, and and I think that that illustration you gave, you know, as you read Smith, but even if you were to read Taylor, you'll notice how frequently he cites. They both cite different artists, musicians, poets all telling some version of that same story. And what they're kind of saying is the experience that we see, why is it the people who reject Christianity or reject whatever kind of formal religion they have end up back in this quest for transcendence? And they're saying, you know, from a phenomenological standpoint, they're saying that the experience of this is that the subtraction theory doesn't work. Because if it did, what would happen is when people reject it or deconstruct it or something, they, they wouldn't feel the need to grapple with something else because there would be this inevitable progress towards this uh, you know, belief system that's based on, on science and reason and human possibility. But when the people do that, they don't end there. They always go back towards something else. And then what ends up happening is they end up inventing something new or going back into something new or converting to something that's established. But mm -hmm. it's this cycle uh, more than a, a progressive line. It's a cycle of, of grappling with the imminent world and materialism and grappling with the human need for transcendence. And you can't escape that cycle. And, and I think that's what they're getting to. And um, it's not as much in chapter one, but you're going to hear Smith talk about fragility. And so what he's talking about is it's fragile because if you're fully entrenched in a religious belief system, you always have this possibility of something else out there mm -hmm. that that is lurking. But then if you deconstruct and become an atheist, you still have the possibility out there. And so any way you slice it, that you are interacting with or living in a world that is presenting other possibilities to you. And that's a unique challenge to this age for those who want to have faith, but it's also a unique challenge in this age to those who are trying not to have faith. <laughs> you know, they, they can't quite escape it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So getting into, um, we, we've hit a lot of the themes from chapter one already, but a few things I want to draw from. Um, in the intro paragraph, Smith says this, the emergence of the secular is also bound up with the production of a new option the possibility of exclusive humanism as a viable social imaginary, a way of constructing meaning and significance without any reference to the, to the divine or transcendence. 
Now, it's a great paragraph. It's a great sentence, and it's tied in his intro paragraph. Uh, a pro tip if you're reading academic books is the first paragraph and the intro tend to be very important for understanding something. And often, most writers, the last paragraph is a great way of summarizing. And so if you're reading one of these and you're like, I don't know what he just said, read the chapter, then go back and read the first paragraph again. And typically what you'll find is it'll make sense at a deeper level. It doesn't take them much longer. Sometimes if I'm reading something, especially if it's technical, I'll actually start with the intro and go to the conclusion and then read the chapter and then maybe go back and do it again. Um, it just helps you to make sense of the argument. And so um, within this, I, I, there's a few things here I think that's great that, that just underscores what we're saying. But the concept of production of a new option, that's a very intentional phraseology because it's something, it's a, it's a product of human behavior and culture. And so we are producing secularism. We're not defaulting into secularism. We're not deconstructing into secularism, but it's a human creation and it's a cultural creation. And as you said, Mick, earlier, what, what they hit over and over again is it's not inevitable. This is not something that was bound to happen, but this is something that humans made and humans developed from within a culture that created new possibilities. Um, we've already hit social imaginary um, or what, what is possible to believe, so I don't want to um, belabor that. And you get down to uh, it, constructing meaning and significance without any reference to the divine or transcendent. You know, within that, what, what's not being argued is that people don't want the transcendence, and that's what we've been talking about this whole time. But what it's saying is that that transcendence or God is not imparting meaning to us. So we are a blank slate, as, as you've mentioned before, Mick, internally, and then we can pursue the transcendence from this blank slate sense of self. But I'm not starting with the divine, you know, our identity that God has imparted upon me. I'm starting with the possibility of what I want my life to be. And if I choose to pursue transcendence, that's fine. But if I choose not to, that's fine. If I try on different forms of transcendence, that's fine. That's all within secularism three. Whereas a, um, you know, a historic Christian thing uh, framework would be that, that I'm actually assigned meaning of who I am, what my purpose is, um, independently of what myself choose to create. Yeah. And from the beginning of this podcast, you've adamantly uh, uh, chosen to use the phrase that secularism is a belief system. It's not a worldview. It's not, again, a baseline uh, to underscore this point, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's where that quote um, I mentioned last time that you just referenced, it's not what you believe, but what is believable. That's the difference. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, a worldview to me is more cognitive. Somebody's thought it all out. Um, very few people have ever thought out their own worldview, but everyone lives within a belief system. And it's it's what you don't it's what you accept without thinking about it that's more interesting to me than what you've thought about and have language for. And it's, it's the possibilities of your belief. You know, what, what's within the range of what is possible to you is more interesting to me than the philosophy class you, talk, you took and the language that you have to explain who you are or something like that. So, yeah, that's why I use belief system. And, um, and I'm really just following people like uh, Charles Taylor and, you know, Smith's interpretation of Taylor is saying that all of us live within some type of constructed belief system. None of those belief systems are neutral. All of them are cultural products that came from somewhere. And I, I like using language. I don't like seeding ground in the language that I use. So the second that I start using language that refers to secularism as some kind of neutral thing. So that's why I don't like deconstruction. That's why I don't like, you know, a lot of these terms is because implied in the term is a narrative. And I don't believe that narrative. I have a different narrative. And so I want to use different language to capture what I think is a more accurate representation of what's really going on. Mm -hmm. And you kind of pull out or structure this first chapter into five elements. What would those be? Well, I'm just following Taylor, who's following Smith, yeah. who's following... <laughs> I, I, we need somebody to do like a, a one-page review of our podcast. Yes. 
that would be it actually uh, maybe points to how complicated of a book that Charles Taylor wrote, where somebody has to review him, we have to review the review, and then somebody else has to review our review to actually make it simple enough <laughs> to understand. Um, so he, he's talking about five elements, and this is really historical. So Taylor's goal here is to chart movements in history. So remember, he's he's building out his narrative. He's like, okay, you guys get your narrative and the subtraction theory of how the world came to be or how how secularism came to be. Let me give you an alternative reading of what's happened. As a political anthropologist, right? Uh, 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 philosophical. Philosophical anthropologist. anthropologist. Yeah. So he, he's starting with there, there are five things that he's going to highlight, and he sees all of these as historical developments. Um, first is disenchantment and the buffered modern self. This is like... Helpful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it would be, if you want to understand the book, you probably need to take the time to understand what all those mean. Um, but it doesn't mean anything if you haven't read this book. Um, disenchantment is a common term, and this is Max Weber. Or Web, how do you say Weber. it? Weber. Weber, yeah. I'm sorry for German speakers. I'm not good at the German pronunciations. Um, he, he wrote a book, uh, you know, some very significant um, sociology and, you know, talking about kind of this disenchantment, how the world went from supernatural to natural, and our understanding of the world went that way. Um, and, and so, you know, whereas uh, Weber would view that um, – probably more from a lens of progress or as, you know, kind of the subtraction theory of human story. And, you know, during this time, I mean, still today, people talk about almost this inevitable decline of religion or the death of God or all the, it's all kind of tied into these stories. And um, so what Smith is acknowledging, or Taylor really is acknowledging, is that there has been a disenchantment, but it's not the stripping away of religious belief, it's the development of new possibilities. And the world, as he sees it, went from five, six hundred years ago, where people's social imaginary would be that the world is infused with supernatural, you know, that, 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 that it's not just the mechanical productions of atoms that make meaning in this world, but there is the material world and there's a spiritual world. And whether I'm a Christian or not, I, I kind of live with this spiritual understanding of the world. The buffered self, um, Smith gives this def definition, or it might be a direct quote of Taylor. I, I should have that reference. Sorry. Um, but it's that I am isolated in my interiority. And I, I hopefully I've explained that earlier, but it's I have the capacity to retreat within myself, and that's my safe space to make meaning of the world. Um, versus I'm living, you know, he contrasted to a porous self. And what he means is when I'm out there in the world, I'm constantly interacting with the spiritual and all this other stuff. Um, the modern sense of self is I, I kind of can retreat into myself, and there's these walls up where... Um, I can choose to engage with the transcendent, but I get to set the terms on what that engagement looks like. There's not this external spiritual reality that's objective that's out there. Instead, um, instead I get it, get to make the meaning. And you know, within that, what happens is we retreat into ourselves, we make our own meaning, um, we form our own identities. And so he's charting the progress of that, of even how we understand ourselves. I see this reflected when... Um, you know, even the idea of natural and supernatural betrays this. So when I say natural, I am implying that there that God is not present in the world, that the natural world is the materialistic world that I can measure with science and see and observe, and that's all there is. And anything beyond that is supernatural that kind of breaks into this closed world. Um, there's a Christian theologian, Hans Borsma, who um, is, is an adamant um, about, about not viewing the world this way and instead viewing the world as a sacrament. Like if God created the world, if the Spirit fills the world, the world itself is a means of God's grace and self-revelation to us where God is present and he's present 
in nature. He's present in the world around us. He's making himself known. Um, I, you know, I, I spend a lot of time of God as an agent, not as an agent in the same level as human, but exercising agency in the world. Um, you know, is another way of looking at it. Um, but I, I think there is something where you know, once once we allow the world to be framed as this closed system, where there are no outside forces, and God is is detached from the world. And the only thing he can do is occasionally interrupt the world, but then he has to retreat back to this place of detachment. That That is a way of understanding the world that's a product of this modernity and secularism. And, um, I, you know, from reading Smith elsewhere, he is also not accepting that as the only way of understanding the world. There are different stories to describe the world in which we live. So Disenchantment and the Buffered Modern Self, um, the second... Uh, kind of feature of this first chapter being living social. And we're not, um, that's not like a product placement because isn't there like a website, livingsocial.com? It's like a Groupon or something. Yeah, they get food or something. I don't yeah, know. I don't know. Uh, but living social, let me see if I can take a stab at this one. This is um, historically, you know, go back, going back five, 600 years, like you said, there were social consequences for our beliefs because of this porous world that we live in. Um, my... It, my unbelief or my um, my kind of transgression against belief could affect you or could affect my family or could affect the community. It could prevent the gods from sending the rain we need for the crops and so on. So there would be this ostracization uh, or punishment for disbelief because of this kind of social network, this porous social network that we live in. But with this turn towards the inward, now there's no longer the consequence for the individual beliefs that I hold. So I can be an atomized individual um, where I have full control and reign over my beliefs. Of course, we're still socially constructed. We still live within social networks. You know, what I believe could impact you know, my family and so on, but nothing like what we had in the past. I am a fully autonomous individual that can choose what I want to believe. And we're talking about the things that had to become believable. So it's now believable that my choices don't significantly impact you, Drew, if I choose to disbelieve in God. I have the full freedom to do so. Is that is that more or less? Yeah, I think you've got it. I mean, that's my reading of it as well. And it, a lot of it is just the individualism that we've talked about so much is it's a change that's occurred in our thought processes. Yeah, the third is what he calls lowering the bar. And this one is, this is probably the most complicated idea to wrap your head around, for sure in this chapter, um, but maybe in Smith's book, and it is a pretty complex thing in Taylor as well. Um, I, I want to make, I want to do a, a brief pause here on some of these. No one is, is necessarily looking at all of these in a good-bad framework. And, and Taylor will say, some of these movements, he would view them very positively, as would Smith, mm -hmm. as would probably you and I. And um, others we would view negatively, and I probably wouldn't agree with Taylor on what's positive and what's negative. And so you have to think of how he's looking at this as he's trying to reconstruct how we got here. And reconstructing how we got here is not all bad, and it's not all good. It's, it's complex, and that's probably what he'd argue for, is it's complicated. It's, it's the story of human development. Another um, potential critique of Taylor at this point, maybe not a critique, but just important recognition, is he's starting with medieval European Christianity as his base. He's not starting, he's not trying to analyze all the range of Christian community mm -hmm. throughout the history of the church. And so there are many other ways of being Christian than was present in medieval Europe, just like is present in 
you know, modern America. And even then you would have to say medieval Europe's, you know, there's different communities at that time and just like there are today. And so it's super comprehensive, it's super long, but it's still only a segment of the overall story. So just as we're going through these five things, I don't think we want to read these as all good, all bad. I think we want to read these as development that created the possibility of where we are today. And then what we have to do is go back through and look at all of them and say, some of these moves were probably good. Like the living social one's a great example. I don't know that it's that healthy to live in a society where my religious belief is entirely based on my social obligations. You know, as a Christian, I would argue against that and say that I think that contradicts the witness that we see in scripture and in the early church where individuals would make choices to follow Christ, or we would create sub-communities of Christians that were going against the dominant narrative. And at times they were persecuted precisely for that same reason you just described, where, you know, because they were following Jesus and they weren't worshiping the gods, they were ostracized because now the gods don't show favor on the community, so let's go after the Christians. So I'd view that as a positive mm-hmm. development, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and but then, you know, as in Taylor's account, you can see maybe where some of the things that I don't like about the late modern world came out of the the alternative of that where we swung so far that way. So it's it's nuanced and it's complicated. What I find helpful with this is um, I, I start to see maybe some of the ingredients that give rise to the age in which we live. Mm-hmm. And then I can go back and interrogate those and say, okay, as a follower of Jesus, how do I understand my role as an indiv- individual versus my role in a community? And I can maybe point to developments historically where it's gone too far one way or the other and use that as a way to try to figure out what, what's a healthy balance? Yeah, like what should my level of commitment to a local body of Christ be? Like how, how should I think about yeah. that? could be one application. Yeah, do I view it as a medieval person where I have actually no choice? This is the church I'm born and raised in, and for me to be a citizen is to be a member of this church, and I can never question it. I don't know any of us want that, right? right? But then I could go to the flip side of I'm this individual Christian who doesn't need the body of Christ, um, which is really a, a complete capitulation probably to secularism three, and I'm going to kind of reinvent my faith on my own terms, you know, and so I have to kind of see both sides of that to then try to make sense of where we are today. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, we'll fly through these last ones. Um, but lowering the bar um, in self-transcendent versus ordinary life, what Smith or really Taylor is looking at is he is he is describing how there is a tension between the demands of ordinary life and the the search for transcendence. You know, and so he would use like the even the breakdown of labor in the Middle Ages is I have a farmer and I have a monk. And what I've done is I've delegated the transcendent duty to the monk so the farmer can pursue ordinary life. And then they, they have almost different rules. You know, you have kind of the more extreme person that on behalf of the community is seeking God. Then you have me who we all got to eat, so I'm going to work the field, but I'm still going to have God in my life. And he, he likes to talk about carnival a lot, where he's, what he's looking at is most of life are governed by these rules, but then every now and then you have these festivals that there's an inversion where you know, I get to make fun of the bishop, which I couldn't do any other day, but on carnival, I can make fun of the bishop. Um, or, you know, maybe another example, I'm trying to remember if Taylor uses this in a secular age, but even medieval warfare, you know, where, you know, somebody's got to fight the battles and if we don't fight the battles, we're all going to die. So I fight the battle and I have to do it, but the priest would never do that because then his hands would get bloody, but he blesses me to go do it. And then there's some ritual. And so you kind of see this tension between the perceived demands of ordinary life that just kind of have to happen and the desire to be this religious community. And, and he sees there being a tension. And, and what really what Taylor's going at there and, and what he would view as the problem is reform with the capital R, where you try to flatten that, where we, we minimize the demands of ordinary life and we call everybody to be a monk 
Um, or, and what he sees happening is you do that, which then is unsustainable. Which would be more like the Puritans. Right? Yeah, yeah. He would probably he would probably use the Puritans or some other kind of more extreme. I don't know that the Puritans are that extreme, but other extreme groups over time. Then what happens is that's not sustainable, and you swing the other way, where he actually views the the byproduct of reform is people just giving up on transcendence, where a lot of the last 150 years is kind of what's called the anthropological turn, where all we care about is human flourishing and ordinary life in the here and now, and we reject any form of dualism. And you know, this is all that matters, is, is making sense of the life we have to the exclusion or the loss of transcendence. So we don't think about heaven anymore. We don't think about, you know. And, and so what Taylor is saying is it's like those two things live in some kind of tension. Um, I'm, I'm probably most ambivalent on this point of what he says, because obviously I believe in reform. I don't like a synthesis where, you know, we don't call people to faith. But I think there's also a healthy critique here of, of saying, how do we incorporate ordinary life into faith? Mm-hmm. And so if I have to view my time in the church as different from my time working the field, and, and I don't make allowance for ordinary life and what it means to be human, and I don't have a theology for all of that, then what does end up happening is... We, we kind of live in this uh, kind of sacred secular. Divide. Yeah, and it's polarized, you know. Mm-hmm. And so you might have a stage where I'm going to like live really radically and do all these crazy things, and and then I, I just eventually give up on that because I can't sustain it. So then I swing hard the other way. And of course, we all know a lot of people who've done that. Um, versus developing, and I think it's fine. Like I'm really grateful for times where I made choices in my own life to live more radically. But I have to also figure out, you know, how do I do that? If you're called to business and and take care of my business and be present with my family and um, but still have a wholehearted devotion in my faith. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's a good, it's probably a good um, topic. I, I don't know that I would land where Taylor does. And actually Smith critiques Taylor on this point too. Um, and, and that's his, one of his things. Um, last two, um, fullness of time and cosmos and universe. So time, and remember these, um, these are not, we're not necessarily even making full judgments on these. We're just viewing them as developments. These things are believable. They become believable. Yeah, exactly. And so time becomes devoid of meaning. That's what he's saying with fullness of time, where um, in, in an ancient understanding of time, there are holy days. Like Easter has a different meaning than an ordinary day does. So on Easter, I am somehow more a participant in the story of what Christ has done than I am on July 10th. And and so there's a, there's a fullness of time um, that infuses the world with meaning. So each year we're reliving the Christian story via the church calendar or things like that um, versus now time is purely utility. You know, there's, there's today is no different than tomorrow. All days hold exactly the same meaning. Um, time is really a means by which we do the things that we want to do, but there's not a transcendent value to time. Last one is cosmos to universe. And this underscores, you know, the understanding that we said earlier is the universe a, a machine that runs according to natural laws or, you know, using modern science according to probabilistic equations or is, is there an inherent meaning in the universe? And even his delineation of cosmos, which I, I think this is probably a move that Taylor makes, where, where cosmos implies a meaning beyond and universe implies a closed system. Um, but what he's talking about in all of this is he, he's talking about um, that this is the possibility of how we view the world. So, you know, even for me, I don't, I don't know that I sit down and naturally think of the universe as a sacramental display of the beauty of God. I probably sit down and think of the universe through the lens of relativity or, you know, something like that. And um, different stories, different narratives mm-hmm. of how we can understand the universe. And I would say at this point, I've done enough, you know, and I know you have as well, Mick, with 
Christian views of science. There's different ways of being a very faithful Orthodox Christian of understanding these things. So it's complicated. It's a very complicated thing. But to summarize what Taylor is trying to say via Smith, now via us, um, what's being said here is these are the developments that make it possible to be secularism three. Mm -hmm. These are the developments that make it possible for me to be this isolated individual that makes my own meaning in the world. And that's what we need to not lose sight of in all of these. You might disagree with you know, Taylor, or you might say, yeah, that development happened and I'm really glad it did, which I do at some points. But what we can't deny is it's given rise to the production, again, the active creation of a new possibility of belief that is present in our world today. And I think that's where we can wrap it up of, of the point that Taylor's trying to make. Mm-hmm. And one last point on that cosmos to universe. I think it was a helpful metaphor that um, going back to the first point that we have a buffered self and he, you could use the same language. Do we live in a porous universe or a buffered universe? Like, is there something outside of this experience that gives meaning, transcendent meaning to our experience in the universe, what he would call the cosmos? Or is it just the universe? It's buffered and uh, maybe there's a multiverse, but still there's a, there's a buffering to the laws of reality, uh, the laws of nature that, that determine our reality. So that's chapter one. There's a lot there. It is a lot. And uh, we really hope that you guys are able to track along with us um, and you know pick up the book if you're able. You can get it on um, both Kindle or hardback. Um, obviously, if you're not able to pick up the book, I, I still hope and pray that you can track with us and, and follow with us. But if you are able to read along, um, please do. We would love questions. And, and I always find it so helpful. If you're struggling with a concept, something doesn't make sense, um, you know, neither of us are, are, are fully agreeing with Smith or Taylor, so we'd love push back on it, you know, something you don't like that they're saying. Just any kind of interaction like that's great. We'll do our best to address it so that way we can make this as helpful a review as possible. Yep, ideologypc at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week on Ideology. <laughs>